Let me have you turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 for our time of study in in the Word this morning. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Titus. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come uh, this morning to Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And my goal today is to cover uh, verses 5 through Uh, through nine. And the title of the uh, message is Above Reproach. Last week's title was A Gospel Approach. Today it's Above Reproach. Uh, I am holding in my hands here a a book that was written by Paul Tripp uh, called Dangerous Calling. And the subtitle is Confronting the Unique Challenges of Pastoral Ministry. Uh, This book was published in 2015, and it's a book uh, specifically for pastors to help them to navigate some of the dangers that are inherent in the ministry of serving uh, Christ's church. It's a good book that uh, actually has five endorsements on the back uh, cover. Uh, Three of them, of these endorsements, were written by senior pastors. One of these senior pastors wrote, this book is a must read. A couple years after writing these words, this particular pastor was removed from his pastorate because of adultery. Another pastor's endorsement on the back of this book said, pastors need this book. Four years after writing These words, this pastor divorced his wife and abandoned the Christian faith altogether. Another senior pastor endorsing the book says, if you have been in ministry for 20 minutes or 20 years, I commend this book to you. And four years after writing these words of endorsement, this pastor was removed from the ministry because of abuse of power financial indiscretions, and for being a pugnacious bully to people in his congregation. In recent years, we have been bombarded with sickening headlines about men who have been unfaithful, engaging in scandalous behaviors, exploiting their positions of power to take advantage of people, And sadly, some of those headlines have involved pastors and leaders in churches who have behaved in these horrible ways, causing unbelievable harm to people that they were called to care for and causing the enemies of Christ to have reason to blaspheme the name of our Savior, Jesus. And the harm is unspeakable. One former member of a famous church whose pastor uh, resigned in disgrace and took many people down with him. This former member, so affected by this, recently tweeted these words to her former pastor, saying, and I quote, Dear so-and-so, and I'll leave him nameless, thank you for the gift of tucking my kids in as they weep and cry over friendships they can no longer have the home they had to leave, and the faith they've watched crumble. 
I give you and your assembly of lead staff and elders full credit for this current experience. Horrifying. Just absolutely horrifying. We live in a fallen, broken world. I don't need to tell you guys that. Every one of us here is broken and marred by sin. And primary among them is me. But the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be a place for people who admit their sin and repent of, of their sin and who are looking to Jesus for the atonement that is found only in him. And the church is designed by God to be the ultimate place for people who are growing in righteousness through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church should also be a place where godly and faithful men serve as elders and leaders and set an example of this growth and seek to help others in the church to do the same. I want you to listen to the beautiful and the simple words of the Apostle Paul in our passage today. Speaking to Titus, he says, beginning in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. What a breath of fresh air these words are. And there it is, just beautiful in its simplicity. There, there are some people who nowadays believe that such men that are described in a passage like this don't exist. And they would suggest that the church would be better served if we just had women assume these positions of eldership and pastors in local churches. But guys, the mere fact that God would tell Titus to choose men like this indicates that such men exist, right? And that God is in the business of making this kind of man, the kind of men who could be trusted to serve in positions of eldership and leadership in the church. Listen to what Paul says, just beginning in verse 5. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Evidently, Paul and Silas or Titus were ministering together on the island of Crete. And then at some point, Paul departed from Crete and left Titus behind on the island. And Paul says here that he left Titus in Crete so that he, Titus, would set in order what remains. And the first of these important matters that need to be set in order 
is for Titus to appoint elders in every city. Let me give you some Greek words that might uh, help you here. The word that is translated elders is the Greek word presbyteros, from which we get the word Presbyterian. Uh, This is a comparative term that speaks of someone who is at an age of seasoned maturity, a maturity that is recognized by people in the church community. That's the best we can do rather than giving a particular number for age. It's just someone uh, who is of an age of seasoned maturity that is recognized by people in the church community. As for what these elders are to do in verse 7, Paul uses the word uh, overseer. The Greek word that is translated overseer is episkopos, from which we get the denominational name episcopalian. Literally, this word speaks of someone who looks upon, who looks upon or who watches over those that are under his care. This word speaks of watchfulness and careful observance. And it implies faithful and loving engagement based upon what is observed. Additionally, in verse 7, Paul speaks of an elder as God's steward. And the Greek word here is oikonomos, from which we get our word economy, actually. This word literally means house, oikos, law, namos. And it's the title of a person who manages and provides direction for the affairs of a household on behalf of his master. Paul here evidently views the church as the household of God and elders are God's stewards who work for God in managing the affairs of his household. As David Mathis says, leaders in the church are stewards, not kings, not stars, not performers. Pastors are God's stewards of his word and his people. And church office is not a personal possession, but an assignment to a steward given to a man by God. So all in all, there are three key words that Paul uses in this passage to speak of church leaders, elder, overseer, and steward. And speaking as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul tells Titus that he left Titus in Crete in order to appoint men who would serve the church in this way, he says, just as I directed you. Just as I directed you. And this could be translated just as I commanded you. So this is not an optional exercise for Titus. It's something that Paul has commanded Titus to do before. And now he's telling him again so that Titus can get the church in proper working order by appointing such men to serve as elder overseers in the church. But whom should Titus pick? What qualities should he seek to nurture in men who will one day serve as elders in the church? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. And the way we'll break down our study of this passage is we'll observe six essentials 
to look for in a man who will serve as an elder in the church of of God. Six essentials. We're going to spend most of our time on the first of these and then go more quickly through the remaining ones. But the first essential is that he, a man who would be worthy to set in place as or qualified to set in place as an elder, he must be above reproach in his love and his leadership of his family. Regarding what to look for in a man who will serve as an elder in the church, listen to what comes out of Paul's mouth first. Verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife. The expression above reproach is used twice in this passage, once here in verse 6 and then again in verse 7. And in verse 7, Paul says that an elder must be above reproach, which shows how passionate he is about the need for an elder in the church to be above reproach. Someone who is above reproach is obviously not a perfect man because only Christ is perfect, but he is a man who cannot legitimately be charged with something that would end up proving disqualifying for him to serve as an elder in the church. And the first thing out of Paul's mouth by way of explaining what it means to be above reproach is that a man is to be the husband of one wife. Literally, this expression reads a one woman man. Speaking of a man who's not just legally married to one woman, but a man who is a one-woman kind of man, a man who is devoted body, soul, and spirit to the woman who is his wife. So a polygamous man who's married to two or three women would not be qualified to serve as an elder in a local church based on what Paul is saying here. A man who is legally married to only one Woman, yet who is committing adultery or who is addicted to pornography is not qualified to be an elder either because he is not a one woman kind of man whose heart belongs only to his wife. What Paul is teaching here sets a radically high standard for the church, a standard that was actually far above what the culture around Titus and Crete and in all of Roman society lived by. In the Roman culture of Paul's day, it was not a big deal for a man to be physically intimate with another woman who was not his wife. Many of the religions had temple prostitutes, and it was just a religious thing to go to the temple and engage in physical relations with temple prostitutes as an act of worship. And there were various ways men in this society, just as today, justified their immorality, even among men who were married. In fact, in first century Roman society, there was a writer named Plutarch who was actually about 20 years old when Paul died. He was about 17 years old at the time that Titus is being written here. And Plutarch Uh, wrote a book where he gives advice to a bride and a groom prior to 
marriage, premarital counseling he offers. And listen to the advice that he gives for prospective brides to consider. He says, and I quote, If a man commits some peccadillo with a paramour or maidservant, his wedded wife ought not to be indignant or angry, but she should reason that it is respect for her which leads him to share his debauchery, licentiousness, and wantonness with another woman. Let that sink in for a moment. And imagine that for premarital counseling. He's telling a Roman bride that if her husband carries out his carnal desires with another woman, the wife should infer from that that, wow, my husband respects me so much as a wife that he carries out his debauchery with another woman so as to leave me untainted. As terrible as this sounds to our ears, um, I've heard just as bad from people who have committed adultery even in the church. This line of thinking was common in Paul's day, along with many other excuses for rationalizing a man's immoral behavior in marriage. But Paul would have absolutely none of this for men in the church of Jesus Christ. He calls men to be faithful to their wives. And here he calls upon elders to set an example of being a one woman kind of man. We learn here, guys, about Paul's high esteem for marriage. It's the first thing he brings up for elder qualification because marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And Paul wants that picture to be beautifully portrayed by all Christians and here in this passage by elders or leaders in the church. We also see something here about Paul's high esteem of women. The very first specific qualification for a man to serve as an elder has to do with how exclusively he's devoted to a woman who is his wife. If the man's wife is not receiving her husband's exclusive devotion, then Paul would say, don't put that man in charge of caring for Christ's bride. And there's some debate about this qualification that Paul gives here regarding the full range of what this qualification entails. Some say it means that an elder must be married, uh, but that would be surprising if Paul were teaching that, uh, given the fact that Paul himself was not a married man, right? And the fact that he encourages singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because by being single, it frees up a person to be more fully devoted to the things of of the Lord. So I don't think Paul is requiring marriage here and giving this qualification. What he's simply saying is that if a man is married, he should be a one woman kind of man in relation to his wife. And if the man is unmarried, he should be the kind of man who evidences the kind of character that you would expect to see in a one woman kind of man. Also, some commentators uh, take this qualification to mean that a man who has 
been divorced in his past and remarried, uh, that that man is now forever disqualified from being an elder. He's forever a two-woman man because he's been married to two women over the course of his life, and thus he's permanently disqualified from ever being an elder in the church. It's our belief here at Cornerstone that the grace of God through Christ working in the life of a man is so powerful that even with divorce in a man's background, that man can over time earn a reputation for being a one-woman kind of man and thus become qualified for eldership. Now, there are times where a divorce may actually be disqualifying for a man to serve as an elder depending on the circumstances, but we don't believe that's necessarily true automatically and in every case. Uh, We'd have to look at the situation and understand the history, and most importantly, we would have to look at the man now and look at God's grace operating in his life and be asking, has this man over a significant period of time demonstrated himself to be a truly one-woman kind of man. I share that to encourage some of you. Some of you do have divorce in your background, and I'm here to tell you that you can become a one-woman kind of man and a one-man kind of woman by being devoted to the spouse that you have right now and by living in faithfulness and fidelity to your spouse. As for the children of a man who could be an elder, Paul says that a man who can be appointed elder, uh, appointed to serve as an elder in the church must be a man who is, look at what he says in verse 6, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Paul's language here makes clear that A man's children actually can have bearing upon whether that man can be viewed as being above reproach as a steward over the household of of God. The expression that we see here in verse 6, having children who believe, could be understood or translated in two different ways. The literal Greek could either be understood as... In this way, having faith children, literally, or believing children, or having faithful children, which I actually think is closer to Paul's idea, the second idea, having faithful children. I like how the New King James Version translates Paul as saying, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. This makes most sense to me partly because of what Paul teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, In that chapter, uh, Paul is giving qualifications for elders to Timothy, and Paul nowhere teaches that an elder must have believing children, but only that an elder be a man who is keeping his children under control with all dignity as he says in 1 Timothy 3, 4. It'd be strange for Paul to only require that an elder in the Ephesian church 
have children who are under control uh, and then require in the less established younger church that Titus is overseeing that elders on the island of Crete must have children who are actual full-on believers. So it makes sense to understand Paul here in Titus as requiring that an elder's children be children who are faithful in the sense of being obedient and trustworthy and dutiful, obedient to their parents and to the authorities in their life, whether those children be four years old or 14 years old. Now, Paul elaborates on what this faithfulness entails by saying that the elders' children are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. In a way, what he's doing is he's defining for us what he means by faithful in these words. As one writer says, a person engaged in dissipation is someone who pours out his substance on personal pleasure He destroys his substance, and in the end, he ruins himself. To behave in this way is is not good. And an elder should not have children who are rightly accused of dissipation, this kind of behavior. An elder's children uh, should not, not only not be accused of behaving in this way, but they also should not rightly be accused of rebellion, which literally speaks of insubordinate behavior or refusal to subject themselves to the rule of their father and mother in the home, the rule of others, and ultimately the rule of God. An elder should be a man who is succeeding in raising children who are willing to be governed by him and his wife and the authorities in their life and whose children have a reputation for being trustworthy and faithful with the ultimate goal, guys, that his children will one day be found faithful to obey God's command to believe in Jesus Christ and to be saved through him and become a faithful follower of Jesus. Now, in giving this qualification, uh, Paul isn't trying to punish the man whose children are unfaithful or rebellious. Paul would tell such a man that, hey, the best way you can serve the church is not by being an elder, but by investing your energies in pursuing the hearts of your children rather than having your energies consumed with eldering over the church. That said, there's also a sense in which Paul's qualification here does serve to protect the church from particular certain men who are terrible fathers and who would be terrible shepherds as well. While it is true that even in the best of homes with the godliest of fathers and mothers, children will sometimes rebel. It is also true that many times children's unruly Behavior reveals systemic failures of a father in his parenting. And Paul knows that a man who is failing as a father is very likely to duplicate those same failures in his shepherding of others in the church. And Paul wants to protect the church from these kinds of men. 
Titus is being told by Paul to find a man who is a one-woman kind of man who also leads his children well. But this is not all that Titus should look for, which leads us to the second essential that Titus should look for in a man whom he can set in place as an elder in the church of God. Number two, he must not be governed by ungodly impulses. We all have ungodly impulses, right? But an elder is to be a man who's not governed by those ungodly impulses. What follows here in verse seven are five knots. You might even want to underline each of the times where you see the word not showing us what an elder should not be. In verse seven, Paul says that Titus should put in place as an elder, a man who is not self-willed, not quick tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious and not fond of sordid gain. Let's take a moment to look at each of these. The expression self-willed speaks of someone who has to have his own way all the time and thinks that his perspective on things is always the perspective that everyone else needs to come around to. He has nothing to learn from the perspective of others. He has complete trust in himself and his own perspective, and he has very little trust in the perspective of other people in his life. Such a self-willed man would be a disaster as an elder in the church, right? Next, Paul says that a man suitable for eldership is a man who is not quick-tempered, meaning not an angry man. An elder should not be a man who nurses grievances and holds grudges and carries anger in his heart. He should not be a man who has a short fuse and who lashes out in anger. Such a man is a danger to the people of God, and he should not be put in a position of eldership over God's precious people. See, God's protecting you here. Next, Paul says that a man fit for eldership is a man who is not addicted to wine. A man who serves as an elder of Christ's church simply cannot be a man who is addicted to mind-numbing, mind-altering substances that lower his inhibitions and make him anything less than sober and fully safe and wise in his actions. God loves his people too much to want someone addicted to wine, be an elder over his precious people. Next, Paul says that a man fit for eldership is to be a man who is not pugnacious. A pugnacious man is a man who is quick to throw punches or to browbeat people with his words. And Paul is saying that such a man should not be made an elder in the church of God. The people of God and the church of God would never be safe under such a man, which is why Paul prohibits a pugnacious man from serving as an elder in the church. I should also add that I think Paul gives this restriction partly because he knows that the ministry itself is loaded with provocations to pugnaciousness. And the ministry is the last place a pugnacious man ought to be. 
I've been a pastor here at Cornerstone for 28 years. I've been lied to. I've been lied about. I've been cussed at. I've been yelled at. I've had stuff thrown in my office. I've witnessed a physical assault taking place in my office during a counseling session that obviously went very badly. I've had people who have refused to allow me into their home. I've had people walk out of their own house on me, leaving me sitting in their living room. So I just helped myself to their refrigerator uh, (laughs) and then went home. No, just know that I'll do that. If you walk out on me in your own home, I'm going to help myself to your refrigerator. I dealt with a man on one occasion who physically injured his wife in a fit of anger, and I felt within me a desire to physically hurt that man myself. I once had a man in the church who was so upset with himself that he literally pled with me to punch him. And I actually found myself wondering if I should give the man the punch that he was asking for. I've invested countless hours into a particular person only to receive an email from that person telling me that they hated every minute with me and that I was the most horrible, I'm quoting, the most horrible human being they have ever had the displeasure of knowing. Trust me. If you're a quick-tempered, angry, pugnacious person who is quick to come to physical blows or verbal blows, the ministry is the last place that you want to be. Go to the beach in Hawaii somewhere and hang out there, but don't be an elder in Christ's church. A pugnacious man cannot be an elder in the church. And when you guys read qualifications like this, I want you to feel the love of God for you. God is, it's like he's got you in his arms and then he's telling Titus, here's the kind of men. He's telling us, here's the kind of men to put in charge over my precious people. God wants to protect you from pugnacious bullies who could do you harm. Maybe some of you grew up in a home where you had a pugnacious parent or caretaker or sibling or classmate or neighbor or whatever, you know what it's like to be browbeaten and bullied and even physically assaulted by someone who should have been caring for you. And I want you to feel the love of God and the heart of God for you in a passage like this and realize that God never wants you to experience such abuse at the hands of of an elder in his church. He wants the church to be a safe place for you. Next, Paul says that a man fit for eldership is to be a man who is not fond of sordid gain. Someone who is fond of sordid gain is someone who, who does not take care or who does not care how he makes money so long as he makes it, even if it's at your expense. The Cretans actually had a reputation in ancient times for being fond of sordid gain. In fact, one ancient writer spoke of the Cretans and said, and I quote, they are so given to making gain 
in disgraceful ways that among the Cretans alone, no gain is counted disgraceful. This is the way the world rolled on the island of Crete. And Paul wanted men in charge of the church of Crete to be different than what everyone else was doing. He wants men serving as elders in the church who value integrity over money. Men who refuse to sell their integrity for unjust gain. Men who don't justify their financial indiscretions by saying, well, everyone does this. No, not everyone does. I'm not going to do this because it's wrong. Paul lays down this guideline here. Because it's very important, a man, an elder, is to be a man who is not fond of sordid gain. So these are things that an elder must not be. But Paul obviously could not just stop here with his qualifications. A man qualified to be an elder is not simply known for what he's not and what he does not do. But he also is to be a man who's known for what he does and for what he loves. And this leads us to the third essential that Titus should look for in a man whom he can set in place as an elder in the church of God. Number three, he must be a lover of people and a lover of good. He must be a lover of people and a lover of good. A man fit to serve as an elder is someone who is not the things listed that we just read, but hospitable, loving what is good? We miss this in the English, but a Greek word for love is in both of these qualifications that are stated here. Literally, the Greek here at the end of verse eight reads this way, but loving strangers, loving good. That's literally what Paul is saying. The Greek word for hospitality is philoxenos which literally means love of strangers. A hospitable person is a person who opens up their heart and their home to other people, including those who are presently outside their circle of known friends. A hospitable person does not view his home as a castle to retreat into, but as an embassy to invite people into. And show the love of Christ too. a hospitable person is someone who is friendly hearted. Who is willing to embrace new people, knowing that his heart will expand with that embrace of a new person. A hospitable person is not just someone who does good to strangers, but who actually loves them and loves welcoming them with the affection of Jesus Christ himself. We have opportunity every week, even here, to practice hospitality in opening our hearts to others and welcoming them with the affection of Christ himself. Tied to that, an elder is also someone who is to be a lover of what is good, which means that he's passionate about things that are good as opposed to things that are evil. It means that he's passionate about doing good to other people doing good deeds. Being a lover of what is good also means seeing the good in people and loving the good that you see 
in other people. Yes, there is brokenness in everyone, but there is also beauty to savor and to celebrate. I found that one of my biggest jobs as a pastor is to simply see the good in my brothers and sisters in Christ and to tell them the good that I see because they're often the last people to see ways that God's grace is being manifest in their lives. An elder should be a lover of good. He should seek to cultivate good in others and he should celebrate the good that he sees in them. And we see Paul doing this in virtually all of his epistles. Also, when an elder who loves what is good finds himself in a conflict situation with someone, instead of demonizing the person that he is in conflict with, such an elder tries to see the good in the other person and to see the good and where they're coming from, good that he can learn from. And such an elder will try to help his brothers and sisters in Christ to do the same way in their conflict situations. A man qualified to serve as an elder in the church is not simply known for what he's not, but he's known for what he is and what he loves. And what he loves is people. And he loves what is good. And Titus is to look for men who are like this. But this is not all that Titus should look for, which leads us to the fourth essential that he should look for in a man whom he sets in place as an elder in the church of God. And let's just word it this way, uh, for lack of a better way. He must be sensible, righteous, and self-controlled. He must be sensible, righteous, and self-controlled. Paul tells Titus that a man fit to be put in place as an elder is a man who, verse 8, is sensible, just, devout. And those words just and devout are very close in meaning and self-controlled. The word sensible uh, is one of the key words in the book of Titus uh, showing up five times. Here we're told that an elder must be sensible. In Titus 2.2, Paul will teach that older men are to be sensible. In Titus 2.5, he will teach that older women should teach the younger women to be sensible In Titus 2.6, he will teach that younger men are to be sensible. No matter what demographic you are, if you came to Paul and said, what should I be? He would say, be sensible. In Titus 2.12, he's going to say that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and teaching us to live sensibly using the same word. So it only makes sense for elders to be sensible, as Paul requires here. The word sensible literally speaks of someone who is wise-minded. And this was a quality that was highly prized even in the secular world of Paul's day. Socrates himself spoke of this quality as being the foundation stone of virtue. Euripides called this trait the fairest gift the gods have given to men. Someone who had this quality is a person who has worked to obtain wisdom. And now with that wisdom, he thinks wisely according to that wisdom. 
And then he allows himself and his life to be governed by that wise thinking that's going on in his head. Rather than being governed by the foolish whims of the world or by his own sinful impulses of the moment. Paul is saying here that this is a quality that Titus must look for in a man who's going to serve as an elder in the church. He must be sensible. He must be wise-minded. In addition to being sensible, the overseer must also be just, which means that he's righteous in his duties toward God and toward his fellow man. He does what is rightfully expected of him by God and by others. Paul also says that such a man must be devout, which speaks of someone who is holy and just in the judgments they render and in how they behave toward God and man. And Paul also says that an overseer must be self-controlled, which speaks of someone who has self-discipline, someone who is self-controlled rather than controlled by sexual lust or by anger or slothfulness or a critical spirit or other base desires. A self-controlled person is someone who's not controlled by the provocations of others or by their circumstances. They're not easily manipulated by their own emotions or by others who would try to manipulate them. Paul wants Titus to pick men to serve as elders who are sensible and strong in righteousness and self-control. But this is not all. There's a fifth essential that Paul wants us and Titus to look for in a man who can be set in place as an elder in the church of God. Number five, he must maintain a firm grasp on the gospel word. Observe how Paul words this. A man fit to serve as an elder is a man who is, verse nine, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. The word holding fast literally means to hold against. It means to grip something tightly so as to maintain a hold on that thing, despite forces that would seek to pry that thing from one's hands. Paul is saying that the elder in the church is to have this kind of grip on the faithful word, which is the gospel word. It would include all of scripture, both the old and the new testaments. But it primarily is the gospel of Jesus Christ that the church is called to believe and to preach to others. There are actually pastors nowadays that are calling us to unhitch from the Old Testament. Let it go. Let it go. Let's just stick with the New Testament. They're not holding fast to all of God's word. And namely, we are to hold fast to the gospel. Paul describes this as the faithful word. It's the word that is absolutely reliable and worthy of our trust, our absolute confidence. It's a word that he also says is in accordance with the teaching. Speaking of the teaching of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, the authoritative body of truth handed to us by the apostles. An elder is to be a man who knows the word, And holds tightly to it. An elder must be a man who knows the gospel. 
who holds fast to the gospel. He knows it is true. He knows that it is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. So he holds on to it for his own benefit and also for the benefit of other people. He preaches it to himself every day. He studies the gospel so as to gain a deeper understanding of it. He ponders its ramifications to every area of life, and he holds on to it with all of his might. When other people around him are letting go of the gospel and laying hold of the newest and latest thing, this man says, I'm going to hold on to the gospel and I'm not going to let it go. When others that this man teaches are complaining and desiring for him to come to them with something else, with some new and fresh teaching from some other source, this man hears that, ponders it, and yet keeps coming to his audience with that same gospel that he's holding fast to day after day and week after week and makes this gospel, this faithful word, the fountain from which he always speaks. The truth is that God wants every Christian to be holding fast to the gospel and to never let it go. And here we see that God wants us to make sure that we choose gospel clinging men to be elders in the church who can show their brothers and sisters in the church what clinging to the gospel and holding fast to it looks like. And keep in mind that Paul doesn't just want elders who cling to the gospel word as an end in itself, but as a means to a greater end. And this brings us to the final essential that Titus should look for in a man whom he can set in place as an elder in the church of God. Number six, he must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute error. We'll touch on this briefly. This is the one qualification, guys, in this whole list that has to do specifically with ability. Paul doesn't tell Titus to pick an elder who has the ability to entertain people or command an audience or to make people laugh or to be an effective fundraiser. But he tells him to pick a man who holds fast to the gospel word, listen to this, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict that sound doctrine. As we said last week, Christianity is a revelation-based religion. At its core is a body of truth that is revealed here and enshrined in Scripture And an elder needs to be a man who knows this book, who's always learning this book, who's holding fast to this book. And then he's able to open his mouth and do two things. First of all, he needs to be able to exhort or encourage people in sound doctrine, which speaks of doctrine that makes people healthy and whole which the Bible has the power to do. He needs to be able to come alongside of people and encourage them to believe the truth of God's word, to follow its ways, to believe the gospel and to apply the gospel to their lives and to live consistently with it. But secondly, an elder should be a man 
who is able to rise up against error and refute people who are teaching things contrary to the gospel. A good elder is not just a man who preaches positive messages, but a man who is willing to confront error and to make war against it and to refute false teaching, to point it out, to call it what it is, and to refute it. And notice the two angles of the elder's verbal ministry of the word identified here. He exhorts in sound doctrine and he refutes those who contradict sound doctrine. John Calvin said it well when he says from this passage, a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means for doing both. Paul is telling Titus to find men who know the word and who hold fast to the word and who are able and willing to use these two voices. Such men can serve as elders in the church of God. We'll stop here for today and working through Titus, but let me just take a few minutes to ponder some quick things as we close. First of all, there's something remarkable about this list of qualifications that's easy to miss. D.A. Carson makes note of what's remarkable about a list like this, and that is that it is remarkable for being unremarkable. David Mathis elaborates on this and says very wisely, there is no requirement here for particular achievements in formal education, world-class intellect or oratory or manifest giftedness above the common man. Rather, these qualifications are the sort of traits we want to be manifest in every Christian. What we're looking for in our pastor elders, in essence, is normal healthy model Christianity. That's it. A tendency nowadays is to try to find a man who graduated from a solid seminary, perhaps a man who is a gifted speaker, a man who has a lot of charisma, uh, who's good at running capital campaigns, who looks good in skinny jeans and any other list of intangibles that people are looking for in a man who will serve as a leader in Christ's church. Paul is simply looking for men who are some distance along in modeling normal, healthy Christianity and who are able to encourage others to do the same with sound doctrine. And he's able to refute those who speak against that. I would also encourage you guys not to, any of you who are non-elders, we have seven elders here at Cornerstone, and for everyone that's a non-elder, I don't want you to look at these qualifications that we've looked at today and say, wow, I'm glad I'm not an elder. <laughs> Otherwise, these qualifications would apply to me. An elder has to have self-control. Can you believe that? 
I'm glad I don't have to bother with being self-controlled. An elder isn't allowed to be pugnacious. I'm glad I'm exempt from that because I'm not an elder. No, don't think that way. If we had the time this morning, I could show you in the New Testament where every Christian is called to either the letter or the spirit of every one of these descriptions that are found in our passage today. The reason Paul wants elders to have these qualities is because Paul wants to see these qualities in every Christian. These qualifications listed here are good for every believer, not just for elders. Whether God ever intends for you to be an elder in Christ's church, go to God today and ask him to help you to grow in these very qualities in your life. If you're a parent, these list of qualities represent good things to work towards in raising your children. Seek to cultivate these qualities in your sons in the hopes that they might one day be qualified to serve as elders in the church. Cultivate these qualities in your daughters as well. And don't underestimate how helpful it is even for the elders here at Cornerstone to see these qualities in your life because it makes us better people. When I read and study the items on the list that we've looked at today, I don't just think of my fellow elders and how they exhibit so many of these qualities, but I also think of many of you and how you model these things for me. And I can honestly say that I'm further along personally in having some of these qualities because of the inspiration I've drawn from the example that you have set for me. Thank you. And lastly, let's just take a moment to admit that no elder in the history of the church has ever lived up to these qualities perfectly. But we can be thankful that someone did. We can be thankful that Christ did. And because he did, we now have a savior who can forgive us and give us atonement when we fall short. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ was perfectly faithful as a son over his house, managing his father's household perfectly. We're also told that Christ is perfectly faithful to his bride, the church, and that he is faithful in raising up children who are godly. It is Christ who will one day, according to the writer of Hebrews, stand before his father and say, behold, I and the children whom God has given to me as we are gathered around him. Christ was never self-willed, never quick-tempered, never addicted to wine, never pugnacious, never fond of sordid gain. He was a lover of people. He was a lover of good. And he went everywhere he went, doing nothing but good to other people at every turn. He always held fast to God's word in every temptation. He always taught the truth. And he was willing to stand up and refute the errors of his day. If there was ever anyone who is 100% perfectly worthy to be our overseer, it is Jesus. Amen? Yet what did people do to him when he came 
and presented himself in Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passion Week. They crucified him and they cast him out. They did not want him to be their overseer and Lord. And apart from the grace of God in our life, we would have done the same thing to Jesus. Jesus was absolutely above reproach. But Paul tells us in Romans 15, 3, that the reproaches of those who reproach God fell upon Christ. And he was crucified and buried in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead and seated Jesus at his own right hand, where Jesus now reigns as ruler over heaven and earth. And he reigns as the senior pastor of Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church and over every other church around the world that claims his name. And it is now the job of every Christian and every elder to point people to Jesus and to reflect him to others so that people can see him and believe in him and be saved. And it is because of Jesus that all of us can have forgiveness of sins for any ways that we fall short of the qualities that we see presented in our passage today. If you're here today and you have never believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, believe in him today. Respond to him and to his word today and believe in him as your Lord. Believe in him as your overseer and savior. And then become a part of the cornerstone community here in this local church that's presided over by elders and filled with brothers and sisters who are all together just seeking to be more like him every day. We would love to have you join us on that journey. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the sweetness of your word. There's so much mess and devastation around us that comes from people behaving the opposite of what we've seen in this passage today. And some of this wreckage is in churches being visited upon people for whom Christ shed his blood. I pray for myself and for my fellow elders, Lord, that you would help us to grow in faithfulness, that you would make us men who more and more through your grace exhibit these qualities in our life and in our ministry. I pray that you would help us as a congregation to manifest these qualities at every turn so that people through these qualities can actually get a glimpse of Jesus and know of your power to change lives through Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up men among us and whom these qualities are strong and evident and who can serve alongside of us as elders in this church. That we might give glory to you and fulfill our calling 
We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you to support the ministries of this local church and to support the work of missionaries here in this country and around the world. Help us to be faithful with what is given. And we ask you, Lord, to do much with all that is given in this offering for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give ourselves to you in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,